how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Psalms Part 2. Well, now we're looking at the Psalms and we're looking at the moment at the groups of Psalms which are best taken together so that we get them in context. We've talked about Psalm 22, 23 and 24. Uh, A next group that I'd like to mention is Psalms 96 to 99 and they have a common theme. God reigns. God is king. That's the nearest we get in the Old Testament to the concept of the kingdom of God and those Psalms belong together. Then there's another little collection, 113 to 118, known in Hebrew as the Hallel Psalms. These are sung together at the Passover and there is one of them in particular, Psalm 118, that means a lot to us as well. It's from Psalm 118 that we have the chorus, this is the day that the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. And bear in mind that refers to the Passover day in the Old Testament, not to Sunday or to any day but to the Passover day. And in that same psalm is the cry, O Lord, save us, or literally, liberate us. And the Hebrew for liberate us is Hoshana, from which we get Hosanna. Unfortunately, we now think of it as a kind of heavenly hello, you know, Hosanna, but it actually is a demand for freedom. Hoshana! And it's what they uh, cried out to Jesus when he rode in at the Passover on a donkey. And they really believed that he was going to liberate them from the Romans at that point. Tragically, in their eyes, when he went through the gate into the city, he turned left instead of right. And the crowd fell silent because he took a whip in his hand and he whipped Jewish businessmen in the temple instead of whipping the Romans out. The Roman fortress was on the right, the temple was on the left, and when Jesus rode, they threw palm branches down and they shouted, Hoshana! Hoshana! Save us now! And then he so disappointed them that a few days later they were shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! He's no good! We prefer Barabbas, the freedom fighter. Well, I'm getting off into preaching something else now, but All this comes out of Psalm 118, the Hoshana Psalm, the song for freedom at Passover. Then the songs of ascent, 120 to 134, they're labelled songs of ascent, uh, meaning songs of going up. Jerusalem is of course right up at the top of the hills, though it's in a little hollow at the top, but all the pilgrims had to go up to Jerusalem. Hebrew word for going up is Aliyah, And that is what they call every immigration into Israel today. They say, are you making aliyah? Are you going up to Jerusalem? And these songs of ascents are all to be sung while you're going up to Jerusalem. And Psalm 121 means an awful lot to my wife and I because uh, some years ago my wife had cancer in her eye and was in danger of losing her life. It was very serious and surgeons battled for her life. And uh, I was wondering what to preach on 
that Sunday while she was in hospital and uh, the Lord directed me to Psalm 121 and I found every verse in it is about eyes. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Now when you're walking up to Jerusalem, that's a very dangerous thing to do. You'll be flat on your face very quickly because the roads are rocky and even when you're climbing up, you've got to keep your eyes on your feet. But the psalmist says, I will lift my eyes to the hills. Lord, you keep an eye on my feet, please. And then it talks about the Lord being the keeper of Israel, but the word in Hebrew is not keeper, it's eyelid. And God's people are the apple of his eye. And that means the iris of your eye. That looks just like an apple on end. That's the apple of the eye, not a Cox's orange pippin in your hand, but the iris of your eye. And it's the most tender part of your body and if it's touched your eyelid, the keeper slams down. And that whole psalm, I enjoyed preaching on that that day, one or two of you here were there and I just preached on every verse. You see, you can be blinded by the moon as well as the sun. If you sleep out of doors under a full moon, you could be blinded. And so the Lord is my keeper and he keeps me from the sun by day and the moon by night. And So I preached this and then went and took the tape to her in hospital, but uh, a young girl, a nurse who'd only been a Christian two months had already beaten me to it and gone to my wife and given her a word from the Lord, you will lift up your eyes to the hills. And a few weeks later, without even a bandage on, we went to Canada and climbed the Rockies. She's had no trace since the Lord had mercy on us. It's a song of ascent, a song of going up to Jerusalem. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. That's where my help comes from, from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So that's a group of psalms that needs to be looked at together. The final group is 146 to 150 and those are all songs of hallelujah. Hallel, praise, Yah, Yahweh. Hallel, Yah, praise the Lord. And they're all hallelujah psalms and finish up and uh, if you know Ish Ishmael's version of Psalm 150, praise him on the harp. Do you know that one? A very lively praise song based on that. I like these modern versions of the Psalms because we can sing them so readily. Now let's look as distinct from groups of Psalms at types of Psalms. And here I just want to look at the please, thank you and sorry Psalms because they have a particular form. The form suits the content. Now the, the please Psalms we often call lament song, Psalms. They're, they're sad songs. They're a cry from the heart, a creed occur and, and something is happening that is making the writer very unhappy and he cries out of that unhappiness. There's a lot of self-pity in these psalms but it's healed by being presented to God. It's not indulged in as self-pity but it's presented to God. God, I'm sorry for myself. I, I'm disoriented. Sometimes the psalmist is disoriented by sickness. He's seriously ill and serious illness has a bad effect on us spiritually, doesn't it? I remember going to hospital more than once for surgery and taking a whole lot of devotional books in with me to read and coming out with them all unread. You know, and you don't realise how drained you are after major surgery. You really are spiritually no good. And, and some of the Psalms he is disoriented by sickness or he's disoriented by injustice when he's been treated unfairly. Now of course life is unfair, it is unjust, we've got to face that 
and, and many times we attempted to self-pity because we felt we, we should have had a better deal than that when somebody less qualified is promoted instead of us or, or when our child dies and somebody else's doesn't and we feel disoriented by injustice. There are psalms about that too. Now all these lament psalms have the same form. They are in a slow rhythm. Uh, obviously the music should be a kind of dirge music, a kind of funeral music, but they are a slow, heavy rhythm and uh, we should note the difference. Some psalms are light and joyful but others are heavy and uh, they all have the same form. They have uh, five parts to them. A cry to God, then the complaint as to what's wrong, then a confession of trust in God that he will deliver, then a petition calling on God to intervene and finally a vow of praise. I promise to praise you when you deliver me. And all the lament psalms follow that fivefold pattern. It's interesting. That's why you need a whole psalm. A few verses out of a psalm don't give you the, the whole form. There's a progression there. There's a balance there. If you just took the first bit, then you'd just wallow in self-pity. But he always finishes by saying, I can't praise you now, but I vow I will. Just as soon as you get me out of this, I'll praise you and I'll keep my promise. That's very interesting. Isn't that honest? You know? We're not supposed to praise God for everything. It says praise God in everything. So, did, so glad it doesn't say for everything. Some things you can't praise God for, but at least you can make a promise that when things turn out better, you'll praise Him. And the lament psalms usually finish with such a vow. Then there are many, well, most of the uh, personal psalms are lament, but many of them are gratitude, which are written after deliverance. And you remember that ten lepers were healed by Jesus but only one bothered to say thank you? Um, it's very common to have a prayer meeting before a service or a meeting. But I went to one church in South Africa where they had it afterwards. I thought, that's interesting. And I said, why do you have it afterwards? They said, we want to say thank you. And I thought, you know, so often we ask God to bless a meeting, we ask Him to be with us and to do things, and then as soon as the hymn's over, we, the last hymn's over, we rush away and we forget. But in this church in South Africa, they always came back. Sorry, it was in New Zealand. Let's get it right, New Zealand. In the South Island, they always came back and had a prayer time of thanks after the service. They taught me quite a lesson that. I'm so used to praying before things, not so used to coming back and saying, thank you, Lord. Now again, the thank you psalms have a particular form. Four things are said in every one of them. First of all, there is a proclamation, I'm going to praise. Then there is a statement about what he's going to praise God for. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all, my, all his benefits. That's the first part. Second part is, he heals all my diseases. He saves my life from destruction. So that's the statement of what he's saying thank you for. The third is a testimony to deliverance. It's good to give testimony. One of the Psalms says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If God has blessed you, say so. Share it with somebody else. That's all the testimony is. That's what we were doing earlier this morning. That's the third part of a thank you Psalm. And the fourth is always another vow of praise to go on praising God for what's happened. So there's a pattern in these types of Psalm. Penitent psalms, there are not so many, um, there are fewer, 
Psalm 51 is the most obvious. Once again, there's a pattern. And it's, it's interesting just to notice this form, if you like. There's a balanced and good pattern of worship in the Psalms. And again, when we are ad-libbing in worship, we tend not to have a pattern. But patterns are good. There's a balance in all things between form and freedom. If you have too much form, it becomes formality. If you have too much freedom, it becomes chaos. And we need both, and there's a balance. I find the Lord can use us best when we are thoroughly prepared and willing to scrap everything we've prepared. That's when the Lord can really use you. But coming with blank minds and saying, let's just let the Spirit drop some worship in, it doesn't usually work. Sometimes it does when there's a genuine emergency, but as a general pattern of worship, it gets into what I call charismatic ritualism. And you know what that is. <laughs> so, there's a form, a proper way to address God. And use of the Psalms helps us unconsciously to develop the right form. It's just when you learn the piano, you know, one, two, three, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti. Did you go through all this? And it's so conscious and so mechanical. But after a bit, you find yourself doing it without thinking. And then you can play. Now, I believe worship can be like this. You learn the form fairly mechanically. But it's good to have a pattern and to get to the point where you're hardly conscious of using it. And it's clear that as David wrote these psalms, he was hardly conscious that he was using a form. But somehow the form gave balance and symmetry and, and proper, well, whatever. <laughs> now let's look finally at certain special categories of psalms, of which there are four. We've looked at groupings of psalms, we've looked at types or the form, the packaging of certain things that uh, they wanted to say to God, but now let's look at certain very special categories. And the first are what we call royal psalms. Now, it's not surprising since David wrote out of real life. He was a shepherd, so he wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, but he was also later a king. So he wrote about kinging and from an inside point of view. So we have the coronation psalm in Psalm 2, which I've already mentioned, but there are a number of other psalms on which our national anthem is based. And if you put all the royal psalms together, you will find our whole national anthem there. God save our gracious Queen, send her victorious. See, one psalm is all about giving the king victory in battle. And that's where the lion send her victorious comes in. And you'll find our national anthem has been brilliantly composed of the Psalms. The only difference is, of course, that our Queen is not Queen of the Lord's people. And therefore, in a sense, some of these things are inappropriate to say about her. But uh, I'm afraid so often other nations than Israel begin to think that they're God's nation. There was a time when America thought that. But I'm afraid there are plenty of people who think that Britain is like that. There's even a sect called British Israelitism, of which you may have heard, as if we are special. I tell you, Britain is not special in God's sight, and he is now telling us that as clearly as he can. There is only one nation that God chose to be his nation, and that's Israel. We must never forget that. But no other nation is special. South Africans thought they were special and claimed from the great trek across to the Transvaal 
that the book of Exodus was all about them and it almost became a religion. And they think that and it's so easy for a nation to think that they're this chosen nation of God. We're not. We're Gentiles. Never forget that. We've been grafted into the Jewish roots, praise God, but we're Gentile nations. We're not a special nation and these royal psalms are for the kings of Israel. But then we are all going to reign with Christ so that there is a sense in which we can sing them. There's a wonderful psalm about the Queen. Have you ever read Psalm 45 all about the Queen and how unworthy she feels to be the King's wife? But then that's how you ought to feel because you're the bride of Christ. You are the royal family of England. You are going to sit on thrones with Jesus. Then live like royalty and people expect royalty to be a cut above others. They don't expect them to have the common problems everybody else has. So live royally. And these royal psalms have a lot to tell us. Do you know that the lion and the unicorn come from Psalm 22? From one of the earliest English translations of the Bible which got the unicorn wrong because the unicorn doesn't exist as you know. But there in Psalm 22 in the early English is the lion and the unicorn and that's where our national coat of arms came from. So uh, Canada once thought it was and do you know why it's the only nation in the world called the Dominion of Canada? It's based on Psalm 72 where it says, Your dominion, O Lord, is from sea to sea. And since Canada was from the Pacific to the Atlantic, they said, We are the Dominion of Canada because they got this special sense, We are the Dominion of the Lord. And so many nations have thought they were the chosen nation and therefore used the Psalms wrongly. <clears throat> but David, of course, was a model for the ideal king. He was a man over after God's own heart. He may have made big mistakes and he did, but he was still a man after God's own heart. And that is why ever since the Jews have looked for another son of David and the royal psalms become for the Jew messianic or prophetic psalms, which brings me to the second category. The word Messiah, which we usually pronounce as Messiah, means anointed. And at the coronation of every king of Israel, they were anointed with oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And our kings and queens in the middle of the coronation have what's called the unction, the anointing with oil, a special blended oil of 24 different herbs and oils. And they are anointed. But uh, that really is something that is for the king of Israel. And the anointing, the word anointed is in Hebrew Mashiach and it only occurs once in the whole Old Testament and that's in Psalm 2. My anointed one, my king in Zion, says God, and he laughs at those who think that they can throw off the chains of his dominion. Now when you treat the Psalms as prophetic and 20 of them are quoted in the New Testament, it is astonishing what is prophesied about the son of David in these psalms. Let me just run through and I'm only picking out some. God will declare him to be his son. God will put all things under his feet. God will not let him see corruption in the grave. He will not be forsaken, sorry, he will be forsaken by God 
and scorned and mocked, and have his hands and feet pierced, and his clothes gambled for, but no bones of him will be broken. He will be accused by false witnesses. He will be hated without a cause. He will be betrayed by a friend. He will be given vinegar and gall to drink. He will pray for his enemies. His betrayer's office will be given to another. His enemies will be his footstool. He will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He will be the chief cornerstone and come in the name of the Lord. Now, every one of those things I'm quoting from a prophetic messianic psalm. And David called himself a prophet because he could see someone else. It's amazing how David was able to enter into the sufferings of Jesus on the cross without ever having experienced them himself. Nobody pierced David's hands and feet. Nobody gambled for his clothes. And yet in that Psalm 22, which begins, My God, my God, why? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? It goes on, they've pierced my hands and feet. And one of the greatest I am's of Jesus comes in that psalm, I am a worm. Now you know the other I am's, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the bread of heaven, I am a worm. I'm being treated like a worm. That's prophetic. And David, by the Holy Spirit, was able to see his son, a descendant of his, going through this terrible experience of being betrayed by his friend and losing all his clothes in a gambling and being pierced hands and feet, being mocked and laughed at, let God save him. It's all there. Now those are prophetic psalms, messianic psalms, pointing forward to somebody who had experiences that David never had. Then there's a third category of psalms we call the wisdom psalms. Now these come out of a much quieter kind of life. They are the result of quiet reflection and meditation, more like the book of Proverbs, and they are full of practical wisdom for life. And it's good to sing wisdom songs. They are not for crises. They are to store our minds with wisdom. The Bible will not make you clever, but it will make you wise. Which would you rather be? Well, you'll make more money if you're clever, but you'll make more of life if you're wise. So the Bible is to make us wise, not to make us clever. There are plenty of other books to make you clever. There's one book that makes you wise. Now, wisdom is concerned primarily with two things in the Bible. First, the conduct of life, and secondly, the contradictions of life. And wisdom thinks about these things. First of all, the conduct of life. The book of Psalms begins with a wisdom psalm, and it says there are two ways. You can walk in the way of the ungodly, or you can walk in the way of the wise. You can be a fool or you can be wise. Just like Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount with the two ways, the broad way that leads to destruction and the narrow way that leads to life, the book of Psalms opens with two ways and it therefore says this book of songs is only for those who are walking in the right way. It's not for those who sit, walk or stand with the evildoers. Those are three interesting verbs. Don't walk with bad company don't stand with bad company and don't sit with bad company. There's a progression there.
Do you know what it means? If you walk with someone, then you're chatting and you're picking up something from them. If you stand around with them, the relationship's getting deeper. If you sit with them, then you become friends. And it says, don't walk, stand or sit in the way of sinners because the company you keep is probably the biggest influence on your life and the choice of friends is perhaps the most important choice you'll ever make. Bad company ruins good morals or good manners, sorry, to quote Paul. Well, the conduct of life, but the contradictions of life and Psalm 73 is a classic wisdom psalm on the contradiction of life. What's the biggest contradiction of life? I'll tell you that bad people get away with it and good people suffer. And Psalm 73 tackles that problem head on. And the psalmist says, I have cleansed my heart in vain. It's a waste of time trying to live a good life. Why? He says, wicked people die in their beds in peace. They make plenty of money. They get away with it. They're not caught and they live a happy life. Now, has that problem never hit you? <laughs> that that some, some of your neighbours who don't care that much about God, who don't even try to live a godly life, but they're happy, they enjoy life. It makes it such a problem to get them converted, doesn't it? <laughs> because they're so much happier than we are. <laughs> See the problem? And, and the psalmist says, I'm troubled all the day long, can't sleep nights, I'm trying to live right but it's such a battle, Lord. And I look at my unbelieving neighbours and they're so happy and contented and they die of old age, quite happy. It's a real problem. But he solves it, he says, and then I went into the temple and I saw their end. And he said, oh, you've put them on a slippery slope, Lord, and they're going to slip into a lost eternity. But me? Afterwards you'll receive me to glory, he said. It's one of the few Psalms that mentions the afterlife because belief in the afterlife wasn't strong in the Old Testament. It just pops up now and again. But he says, when I consider the next life, then he said, I don't envy them anymore. That's the way to solve that contradiction. And it's wise. If you only think of this life, then life becomes very unfair. One of the first things children learn to say is it's not fair. And if you go through life saying it's not fair, it'll show on your face. Every person over 40 is responsible for their face. Now, some of you can laugh, but others of you, if you don't like what you see in the mirror, you know what. See, you don't have beauty until you're 40. You have glamour before that. And one Methodist minister by the name of Dr. Sangster had a beauty queen contest in his church which horrified the church. But there was one condition that everybody had to be at least 60 because he was trying to make the point that real beauty is something that belongs to the second half of life. In the first half of life you've got the face that nature gave you, in the second half you've got the face you gave you. And if you go through life saying it's not fair, I remember, <laughs> I remember being asked to go and visit our local hospital they said, there's a man once a priest. I said, well, I'm a pastor. They said, well, that'll do. So they, <laughs> I, I went and found this man in bed and I said, I understand you want to talk to a priest. Why? He said, why has God done this to me? And I said, what do you mean? What has God done to you? Well, I'm in hospital. I said, have you never been in hospital before? He said, never. I've lived an upright life, he said. I said, how old are you? He said, 96. 
and here he was surrounded by all these pretty nurses waiting on him hand and foot. Any man would give his right arm for that then. Here he is. Why has God done this to me? Now you laugh at him but do you know many people go right through life saying it's not fair and they say that because their vision is limited to this life. But when you consider the next life, would you change places with them? Would you really want their life? They're on a slippery slope. When I perceived their end, he said, and he didn't perceive their end till he went to the temple and started thinking about eternal things. See, while he was in his daily life and just thinking of this life only, he said it's unfair. But when he went to the temple and saw the future, the whole thing changed. These are wisdom psalms and we need the quiet wisdom psalms as well as the crisis ones. Well, I come to the final group of psalms, the problem ones, the imprecatory psalms. Where's my Bible? When I went through the Bible, the psalms, I, I underlined these passages in purple, real purple passages. Can you see them in the psalms? And you know when you go through them, Boy, there are plenty of them. You can never see them when you flick through, can you? But some of the Psalms are just packed with these purple passages and if I read some of them, Do not I hate those who hate you, Lord? Let the heads of those who surround me be covered with the trouble their lips have caused. Let burning coals fall upon them. May they be thrown into the pit, into miry pits never to rise. And I read, May their bones be broken. May their teeth be pulled out. Oh, I mean, it's horrible stuff. And I suppose one of the uh, most well-known is a, a psalm they composed in Babylon but didn't sing. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. And there on the poplar trees we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of Zion while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Lord, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill to play. and May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Well, now that's, that's tough meat, isn't it? And psalm after psalm is like that. The imprecatory psalms, very unchristian, surely. There's no forgiveness here. He doesn't even ask forgiveness for what he's saying. Can these psalms be used by Christians? Well, what do we say to all this? Well, I'm going to say six things. First of all, remember that the Jews only had the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament and all that it means. So you mustn't expect the Old Testament to feel fully Christian. That's the first thing I want to say. Or oh, we're guilty of reading back. They didn't have the knowledge of him who said, forgive them for they know not what they do. So these Psalms were written before Jesus. 
need to remember that. But secondly, they were at least honest. And that is a plus in prayer. If you feel like that, tell God you feel like that. It's just as bad to feel like this and that and not say it. In fact, it's worse because then you're trying to hide it from God. If that's how you feel, let it out. I remember a dear lady who had been in a terrible car crash and for 20 years afterwards she was in constant agony and uh, dreadfully handicapped. And uh, she could just stagger around on crutches and terrible agony for 20 years. And one night she was so fed up with it as she was going into the bedroom, she was cursing God for her agony, literally cursing God. And she caught her foot in the carpet, in the rug, and she fell on the bed, and whether she fainted or knocked herself unconscious, she doesn't know. But she was unconscious for many hours. And when she woke up, it was morning, and the sun was coming straight in the window into her eyes, bright, and she was convinced she'd died and was facing the Lord. And with horror she remembered that her last words in life had been cursing God. And she really, she was ready to go to hell because of this. And then she realized, that's the sunshine. This is my bedroom. I'm still alive and the relief was enormous. Then she suddenly realized, I've no pain. And she jumped out of bed and she was totally healed. And she could move every limb no pain. She dashed out into the street. She was telling everybody in the street. She went into the supermarket. She told everybody in the supermarket, I cursed God and look what he did to me. <laughs> See? Now, we mustn't copy her, but what a God of grace. But she was honest with God. That's how she felt. And to me, when I read these imprecatory psalms, I think, thank God for the honesty of these people. They did tell God what they really felt. And it does pay to be honest with God. Don't try and hide your feelings from him. If you feel disgusted with him, tell him so. I will warn you this, you never win an argument with God. <laughs> and when we study Habakkuk, you'll see that. But at least you can argue with him. He doesn't mind that. But you won't win. The third thing I want to tell you is this. Their enemies were also God's enemies. That's important. They weren't just praying for vengeance on personal enemies, but constantly David says, my enemies are your enemies, God. They are against you, really, because I'm your king, and it's your enemies I hate. Not just mine, but yours. Now, of course, for us, the enemies of God are not flesh and blood. The enemies of God are principalities and powers, and I hope you hate them. I hope you hate the devil with a perfect hatred because if you really love God, you hate evil. And there's a place for hatred in the Christian life. We hear an awful lot about love, but there's a place for hatred. Do you hate those who hate God? Well, that's what they did. Fourthly, remember that they had no clear understanding of the afterlife. They didn't have the knowledge we have about the Day of Judgment and Heaven and Hell. And therefore, they had to, in a sense, pray for the punishment of the wicked in this world. Do you follow me? Their view of the afterlife was largely that everybody went to the same place, Sheol, a kind of station waiting room with no trains coming, a kind of shadowy existence. 
Sheol. So they had to pray for God to be vindicated in this life. That's why they prayed for physical punishments in this life for the wicked. They were crying to, the, to a good God for justice, but fifthly, and this is terribly important, in every case they refused to take revenge themselves but left it to God. And that is good New Testament teaching as well. Paul says in Romans 12, don't avenge yourselves, brethren. Leave it to God. He will take vengeance on the wicked. You don't need to. And in all these prayers, not once did they express a desire to punish the wicked themselves. In every case they said, God, you do it. And when you feel like this, leave it with God. He will take vengeance on all those who wrong you because he has recorded it all. You don't need to. Now that, I think, is very important. And so finally, I'd like to say that the New Testament is no different from the Old. There are similar prayers in the New Testament. In the book of Revelation, the souls of the martyrs in heaven are praying, How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? Now that's no different from these prayers. That's in the New Testament. That's in heaven. And Christian martyrs are praying. But once again, they're looking to God to vindicate justice and to bring justice. And that's a valid thing to do. So quite frankly, I don't have problems with these psalms. I can use them. But I have to use them in exactly the same spirit. Not in a sense of personal revenge, but in a sense of God, vindicate justice. You do it. And we know that one day God will do it. And one day there will be a day of judgment. And one day every wrong will be put right. And one day every sin will be punished. And the righteous will be vindicated. And the martyrs will sit on the very thrones that condemn them to death. So, I don't have a problem. It is right in a moral universe that justice prevail and be seen to be done. Well, the Psalms are remarkably balanced in their view of God, for example, in their theology. They balance his attributes and his actions, what he is and what he does. They balance the creation with the redemption. And that's a balance we need to keep. They tell us that God is shepherd, warrior, judge, father, above all, king. And we have a wonderfully full and balanced view of God here. Using the Psalms, we can use them in private. Try using one a day before you go to sleep. There are Psalms to read before you go to sleep. Above all, when you're dying, the Psalms, if you've memorized a few, will come in jolly handy when you're weak and dying. They will just express how you feel. Use them in public. I wish we could learn to use them as a whole and not just little bits because each psalm is intended to be a complete act of prayer or praise. And we need to learn. I think the modern translations, such as the one we just sang, God is our strength and refuge, help us really to get into the psalms. And many are now available in that form. We learn our doctrine through our singing. What we believe is directly related to our songs. Of course, they are meant to be sung. They are musical. There are musical 
instructions. Shigioneth is one of them. I don't know what it means. I've told you that the very word psalm means twanging and is related to the stringed instruments and the wind instruments. There are musical direct directions to the choir master in about 55 of them. Selah, I think it either means pause or lift it up a key or sing louder or now lift up your voices spontaneously. I really don't know what it means. I'll find out when I get to glory, but then it'll be too late. Well, no, we'll be singing there. Have you ever noticed how much song there is in the last book in the Bible? It's full of music. It's full of song. And heaven is certainly going to be a place to sing, whatever else we do. Let me just cure you of one misapprehension. It's not going to be an eternal Monday morning, Sunday morning service. I think most Christians think it's going to be an endless Sunday morning service with each chorus sung 17 million times. Um, I'll be very frank, if heaven's going to be like that, I'm not so keen on going. But uh, no, there'll be work to do, there'll be a whole new universe to explore, there'll be all sorts of things going on. It'll be far more interesting than this world even, far better. But singing will be a part of it, and the music of heaven is going to be one of the most attractive features. And therefore, every time we really sing these psalms, it can be a little foretaste of glory, it can be a little bit of heaven coming down. And whenever we sing, you know, the angels join with us. The recording I have at home is of angels who joined in with a group of young people singing hallelujah. And the angels do sing with us. We are just joining in a circle of praise that is continuous and goes right around the globe every 24 hours. There's a circle of praise and singing to God that we just become one tiny link in whenever we sing. But it's continuous and God can hear this. It's not only continuous on earth. The book of Revelation says it's continuous in heaven. It's going on all the time. Glory and honour and majesty and praise and dominion and power be unto him who sits on the throne. Amen. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.